prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, the filmmaker of our times, Christopher Nolan, returns. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Can you tell I'm excited? I'm excited. Christopher Nolan is back on the podcast today. And the fact that I can even say he's back on the podcast just pleases me to no end. It's official. Christopher Nolan is a regular. He is a two-time guest on Happy, Sad, Confused. And as, and as I teased him on this uh, in this conversation, that means he's in it for the long haul. From here on out, Christopher Nolan, morally and contractually ob obligated always to come on the show. At least that's my hope. Um, this was a fantastic chat with a, a brilliant filmmaker who uh, I truly love and respect uh, so much of his work. Um, going back to following a memento through the Batman trilogy, Inception, The Prestige, Interstellar, Dunkirk, now Tenet. This guy makes the kind of movies that I love. Um, he, he, he swings for the fences. He goes for it. And, um, and by and large, he, he delivers. Um, Tenet is, as you've heard, a very ambitious, complex piece of work. It is playing with time. It is playing with our notions of how to even um, absorb plot and action in, in, in big ways. And uh, it is thankfully finally available um, as of, I believe it's December 15th, checking my notes, yes, December 15th uh, will arrive on 4K and Blu-ray and DVD and digital, so you all can finally see Tenet safely if you haven't been able to on a big screen. It crushed me that earlier in the year, I live here in New York, um, movie theaters have not been open, and it crushed me when a Christopher Nolan movie came out and it was not available where I was. So it's, it's thrilling that finally... I've gotten a chance to see the film and absorb the film, and as with all of Christopher Nolan's works, they require, they demand your attention, and yes, repeated viewings, there's a lot to take in on, in this one, and, um, and yeah, this will be a film talked about for months and years to come, as with all his work. Um, Christopher is always very frank and open and really thoughtful. This is a conversation that talks a lot about Tenet. I should say there are no spoilers in this conversation. We really don't get into any plot specifics. It is more about the themes of the film, the ambition of the film. So if you're worried about having Tenet spoiled, don't worry. This is kind of a broader discussion. Um, we also, of course, talk about a bunch of stuff throughout his career. Have to talk about the Batman trilogy. We talk about... Um, my my love and reverence and his love and reverence for what Heath did and what Tom Hardy did in, in depicting these iconic villains. Um, we talk about, towards the end of the conversation, yes, about where we're at in terms of film exhibition. As you may have heard in other conversations, Christopher has been very, very open about his um, disappointment with Warner Brothers' decision to put out the plan, at least as I speak today, is to put out all of their major theatrical releases on HBO Max simultaneous to their theatrical release, at least for 2021. Um, you know, as you've heard, this is not sitting well with a lot of filmmakers, including Christopher Nolan. And um, we got a chance to talk a little bit about that at the end. He clearly had a lot on his mind about where film exhibition is headed, whether film exhibition can come back in the way that it that it did exist and where the onus lies on. How do we get out of this? How do we bounce back? 
Um, he's clearly put a lot of time and thought into it, and he had a lot to say about it. So stick around for that portion of the conversation that, that's at the very end of this chat today. Um, so yeah, there's a lot in this, in this conversation. I mean, to get 40 minutes of one of the greats of our time who doesn't frankly talk much at length in interviews, at least in podcast form, um, was a real treat. And, and like I said, I'm, I'm truly thrilled and honored that, that he's chosen to, to be on the podcast, not once, but twice. I should mention also, if you're a, a Nolan obsessive like I am, uh, check out the new book, uh, The Nolan Variations, um, which is something that uh, I believe the, the author is Tom Schoen, if I'm remembering that correctly, did um, in conjunction with Christopher. So they're, it's, it's based on tons of conversations they have had. And if you really want like a deep dive into his brain, um, that is well worth your time. And I've, I've enjoyed that in recent weeks. Um, anyway, okay, let's get on, on to the main event. As always, remember to review, rate, and subscribe to Happy, Sad, Confused. If you're new to the podcast because you just wanted to check out what Christopher Nolan had to say, welcome aboard. If you go back into our archives, you'll see a lot of amazing filmmakers in recent weeks. Aaron Sorkin's been on the show. And to tease it out in the next couple weeks, at least two... I know it's at least two because I've already talked to them, two fantastic filmmakers that I've long wanted to have on the show um, have appeared on Happy, Sad, Confused, and that's coming up in your feed before the end of the year. So there's your your tease of today. Um, in the meanwhile, enjoy this conversation with Christopher Nolan. Check out Tenet everywhere uh, on digital, on DVD, on Blu-ray, etc., December 15th. And um, yeah, hope you get as much enjoyment out of this chat as I do. Here's me. And Chris Nolan. Christopher Nolan, welcome back to the podcast. You're officially a regular, sir. <laughs> well, it's great to be back. Thank you. Um, I, I have to say, uh, your films, your work is often on my mind. About a year ago, you were especially on my mind. I had a, I had a series where I was taking filmmakers back to locations where they mm. shot um, iconic scenes. And there I was on South Flower Street with Michael Mann for the shootout. Oh, wow. Heat. And all I could <laughs> think of was the only person that might appreciate this more than me is Mr. Christopher Nolan. I think I might have. That sounds very, very special. I, uh, I don't know if you ever saw, because I'm pretty sure they put it on YouTube, but I had the honor of doing an anniversary panel with, with Michael Mann and the cast of, of Heat a few years back. Uh, it's it's such a great film. He's such a great filmmaker, and I was so honored to be be part of that. I have to say, the moment that that geeked me out the most is when he took out his schematic, um, uh, and it just said World War Three at the top. That's what he titled that <laughs> sequence. <laughs> oh, wow! Wow! Um, I always a uh, huge admirer of the sound in that sequence. Um, if you listen to the sound of the the machine guns, it echoes around the the buildings in a way that you know movie guns never do some really yeah. great live recordings that are really special what's it like for you to go from a fan of someone's work to a a friend and collaborator obviously you've talked at length about uh the dark knight and being inspired by a lot of what michael did especially in that film um that must be just an amazing unexpected perk of a career to find someone like michael mann to call up here now it's it's incredible i mean the first time i met michael I went to uh fancy Beverly Hills restaurant and there was this incredible Ferrari parked outside and I pulled up in my 87 Honda Civic and went in and had lunch with Michael and realized in the course of the conversation that the amazing uh he was a Ferrari actually outside was was his uh and uh just had a, a tremendous meeting of the minds immediately I mean he's, he's such an idol of mine 
but such an incredible guy to to talk to. Uh, and uh, we've had a lot of great, great encounters over the years. But uh, it's, you know, every time I see him, it's like, yeah, it's Michael Mann. He's just one of my heroes. Crazy. Uh, um, and this will not be an entire Michael Mann podcast, I insist. But uh, <laughs> but I do. But I'm curious. Did you ever show him Dark Knight before it came out? Like, did you want to? You must have been endlessly curious of what he thought. No, to uh, to to just sort of give you the the, the name dropping story, as it were, is uh, I was walking across the Warner Brothers lot uh, and ran into him, and he came up to me, and the first thing he said is, he said, "How did you get a PG thirteen on that movie?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, "Well, I you know uh, a lot of a lot of tiny little cuts back and forth yeah. of the MPA, but uh, <laughs> no, it was uh, he was he was complimented by the." Uh, merciless pillaging of his of his movies i think <laughs> i think he like like all filmmakers and now that, that i've been working longer i'm sort of on the receiving and there's some of this um you know as long as somebody acknowledges the the theft right. then uh, you know then it becomes homage uh, exactly homage know. not stealing that's the key as with it. as with tenet just to bring it to tenet and why we're here talking or whatever it's it's like you know I've talked a lot about the Bond films and, and how merciless yeah. they've been, been stealing from them because I think as long as you acknowledge the theft, it's it's kind of okay. <laughs> well. Can, congr- congratulations on Tenet. This is uh, I'm glad we're finally getting a chance to to dig into what's uh, an impressive piece of work and and obviously an audacious piece of filmmaking as it always is for you. Um, I mean, I remember you know the last time we sat down and chatted, we talked about Dunkirk, and I remember we were talking about you know stripping away backstory for an audience and and mm. kind of testing the limits of sort of what uh you know pushing the audience in, in, into into realms they're not used to. All I can think of is in the back of your mind, you must have been thinking you ain't seen nothing yet because I, I have tenant, <laughs> I have tenant on my brain. Well, um, it was it was it was sort of slow growing, but you do you carry on one set of of questions from one film into the next or one set of ideas. And that idea that the audience accepts the world that you present to them from the first frame to the last, and you can dictate those terms to a degree. And people may analyze, you know, critics or whoever may analyze it and say, why has he done this? Why doesn't the protagonist have a name or all the rest of why do we know anything about it? But I think if you really dive into the terms of the story, the way the audience does, as opposed to people being paid to analyze it, uh, film does tend to, film itself tends to dictate that the terms of the story are what you're seeing there on, on screen and those kind of expectations they're of the moment they're, they're about other films that people have seen right before they've seen that film uh, but when you sit in the theatre and the lights go down and images start to come up on that screen your brain builds that world as it's shown to you by the filmmaker and so the films can be enormous they can be small they can have all kinds of off off uh, off-screen backstories that then get talked about, uh, you know, or they could not have that. And uh, that's kind of the fun of being able to set, set your own terms. And once you start analyzing those things, you start looking back at different eras in film, you start to see different levels of reverence or importance assigned to things that we view as absolute needs in a film right now. Uh, and that to me is, is fascinating. Because we're we're so imprisoned in the in the grammar of films that, that we grow up in and that we're we're working in. And so it's a conversation I have a lot about acting because I love silent film. And people are always making fun of the acting in silent film. And I'm I try to explain to them that it's a set of conventions of expression that they were using then. And we have all of our acting conventions are just as stylized and mannered. We just can't quite see it. 
Right. So, you know, I was pointing out to my kids the other day, we were watching something on TV and somebody coughed and I said, oh, they're going to die because our acting is so stylized. If somebody can't even cough, you cough in a movie, a regular exactly. movie, you're going to die. <laughs> that character's gone. <laughs> you know, gone. It doesn't matter if it's a tiny little cough, big cough, you know, whatever. If they pull that um, handkerchief with a little blood, you know. Well, it's then yeah, that's, that's a whole other level. <laughs> But, I, but it's it's literally a you know you can't even do something as as human as having a cough it has to mean something and that's because and that's not a criticism of uh, you know I'm not talking about cliche or anything like that I'm talking about the way the stylization of the presentation of information and narrative is so stripped down that anything that's different anything that might appear to be wasted is meaningful has to have narrative component unless the terms of the film right from the first frame you're in for example a ken loach film or something where naturalism is there and so all of the you know interesting little little diversions of people and the way they move through a scene or gesture at things you know if those are immediately part of the uh, the tone and the language of the film then it's a different matter and then you can cough and you might not die but you know uh, and the rest of it it's it's everything is so stylized that everything has narrative meaning although you know the old saw about you know if you pull a gun out in the first act it's got to go off in the third uh, it's very very true of our films today just as it was true of the silent era it's also interesting to note i mean as i'm watching this and i'm reading all the the, the discussion about it um you know the notion of, of plot and how important the particulars of a plot are the the first blush because here's 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 my argument um I think back to James Bond movies. I don't actually remember the particulars, the specifics of a plot. I remember the feel, the 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 the, the journey I was on. I can't. I don't know if I could tell you what the MacGuffin was, what they were after in this particular film. Now you have mm. all that in there, and it really rewards itself. I've seen it twice already mm. to to sustain viewings and to really parse it out. But frankly, the first time around, it's more experiential. It's less about like, could, could I tell somebody exactly what happened in every aspect? Maybe not, but I felt the journey of those characters. I felt the story. Is that mm -hmm. something you're conscious of? I mean, or do we make almost too much about the particulars of plot? And maybe it is more about feeling it <laughs> as one of your characters say say in, the, in this film. Well, I think that, that one of the, the things that happens in, in film, uh, in Hollywood film sometimes, is the confusion between plot and premise. And so when plot and premise are fused, you get something kind of strong. When they're, they're separated too much and you say, okay, the premise of the film, you know, uh, you know time traveling, secret agent, you know, whatever is the premise, it has nothing to do with the plot and those things are separated. Right. There, there's an inherent weakness. And quite often... There was a period when I first turned up in Hollywood in the early 2000s where you were seeing movies that felt like the sequel to a movie you'd never seen. So it was almost as if the premise was in the trailer and then they, they then constructed a plot that functioned independent of the premise uh, in the movie. And I think what you're really always trying to do is construct a, a premise uh, where premise and plot were the same and the story and the concept are fused. Now, the particulars of the, of the story, I mean it tends to strike people, any film, it tends to strike people in different ways. And this goes back to, you know, Raymond Chandler and his novels and so forth. It's like how much you want to engage on the level of the, the specifics or what are the broad strokes that you're getting that are telling you where they are. One of the great misconceptions of the Bond films, not to, uh, not to dispute you, but if you look at the earliest ones, they had some of the most incredible plots. So if you look at Thunderball and you look at the plot behind that film, which is maybe why it was a subject of litigation for so many years, because the original screenplay that was 
the treatment that was put together between Fleming and Kevin McClory, that then eventually uh, the rights, you know, became an issue because Fleming wrote it as a, as a novel, which is where never say never again comes from. However, they came up with that plot. That's one of the great plots in, in movies and, and, and in books. And I think that with something like the Bond franchise, at a certain point, it was driven plot-wise in the early days. And then there's so much investment from the audience in the character, the situation, the, the episodic idea of it, that, yeah, you get yourself a lot of freedom in terms of plot. But those, the classic Bonds, the early Bonds particularly, the plots were amazing, really, really tight and uh, really original. What's your favorite Bond uh, actor and what's your favorite Bond film? My favorite Bond film is on Her Majesty's Secret Service, as anyone who's seen Inception can probably figure out. Uh, my favorite Bond actor is Timothy Dalton. And I think I love, he, Living Daylights, I think, is one of the Living best. Daylights is very, very good. Yep. Very, very good. A little bit let down by the climax a bit in technical terms, I think. But it's a it's very, very good a lot of the way through. And he's fantastic. And even License to Kill, which um, is aging better than I expected in some ways, but but I think he's closest to the character in the book, um, you know. And it would have been interesting to see him do him do more. Um, yeah. Did you get all of your Bond ideas out of your system on this one? I mean, I remember when we last spoke, you said, <laughs> "When when the time is right, who knows? Like if they need me, maybe that's the right time." Well, Christopher, they need a new Bond. Maybe it's time for for you. I think it, it would be uh, it would be strange to follow up Tenet with a Bond film. That right. would be weird. <laughs> um, uh, did I get it out of my system? I mean, yes and no. I thought I had after Inception, but uh, <laughs> I, I think whenever you think about big action in movies, uh, your brain is always going back to the things you grew up with. Yeah. So for me, that's Star Wars, that's Bond, that's uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, um, which in some ways is Bond with a hat and a whip, you know. Um, but I think you inevitably are drawn back to the things that took you into different realms you know as a kid and uh yeah so for me that'll always be, be the bond films i i've seen a, a healthy amount of of action films in my day and i don't know about you but um i don't know about 10 15 years ago i started to just it started not to work on me whether it was the the i'd seen too much or yeah. they were getting lazy in terms of the filmmaking i mean outside of keanu reeves inventively killing people uh, i could watch that all day long and i think they do a hell of a job in those films it's 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 few and far between, frankly, to see innovative and, and emotional and powerful action. Clearly, you yeah. are pushing it in this. Is that one of the, the reasons, one of the exciting aspects of this is like, I am going to try to find a new way into action and present it to you in a unique uh, way that you've never seen before? Very much. Uh, I mean, Tenet, the driving force of Tenet is to reimagine or represent uh, some of those action tropes, the car chase, the plane crash, fist fight. Uh, we're trying to turn them on their heads and, and look at it in a very unique way. And it's partly because, yeah, you become, you become uh, immune to that drug. You sort of become, it's, it's like, okay, how do I get that same fix of adrenaline that I used to get when I was younger watching something I hadn't seen before. And I think filmmakers really, they have to find ways and you, you know, you're referring to John Wick and of course the breakthrough there was in the particular approach to fight choreography and the integration of handguns into the particular violence and the way that was done, which it built on what had come before, but it also had a new, it had a new wrinkle to it. It had a new thing to it. Um, in the case of Tenet, the science fiction uh, component of the story uh, of the premise, uh, one of my uh, 
interest in that and excitement about that is that you can then take a car chase and you can look at it forwards, you can look at it backwards, you can have it running both directions at the same time. And, and suddenly using a lot of the same filmmaking techniques have been developing over years, but you're looking at it differently. It, it, it's having a different impact and you're looking at it in a different way. Uh, and that, that was really the fun of making this film. And, and hopefully it'll be the fun of uh, watching the film for people. Your films are dissected, as you well know, as few other filmmakers' uh, works are. Is it fruitful for you? Is it exciting for you? Is it interesting for you at all to go down that rabbit hole, to go on the Reddit thread, to read the different articles? Is is that some, or is that is that is that the way where madness lies for you, Christopher? Oh, that's very that? much the way madness lies. I mean, if you work as as I did for ten years, you start working on something as beloved uh, as Batman. It's something people feel so protective on proprietorily. Um, you know, you very rapidly learn you can never look online. Uh, you know, uh, you, you're not going to be happy with what you see. Uh, so you, you have to just, you have to trust that if you make a sincere attempt to, to make things the best way you can and really put your heart into it, that, that people will respect that even if they don't like it, even if they don't like your interpretation of Batman or what, what have you. Um, and so, so no, you can't really, you can't really dabble with the, uh, the the uh, online world too much with with the work you put out there uh, or you'd get you'd just get too self-conscious in, right. in truth um you've got to feel free to to do things you can't be you don't want to be reactive in your filmmaking um you know and and then the truth is when you put out large-scale films and they go out to the entire world one way or another um you can't even insulate yourself from people's reactions anyway you certainly don't need to go looking for them <laughs> A couple of things uh, I will bring up in case you haven't uh, stumbled across them. Um, and I don't want to get into spoiler stuff, but I'll just mention there's, there's a theory about Rob's character in this. Mm -hmm. Are you aware of, of that, at least, of who that person might be? And do you want to uh, um, talk about that at all? I, you know, I don't delve into the world of, of uh, interpretations of, of my movies. I love that people, you know, think it's worth putting the time and attention into. Uh, I think if I were looking at any particular interpretation, um of uh something i had done the, the only thing i would caution or would ask people to look at is um is it indicated in the text you know because right. the truth is a lot of the things that uh people at casual glance view as ambiguities in my work are not ambiguities they are actually things that are pretty pretty specified if you drill down and if you if you look at what the text is what the film what's actually in the movie um, and to me, those are always going to be the most valid interpretations. Uh, things beyond that, uh, that's for the audience to decide. You know? It's been said, it's been cited that at least two of your characters, including Rob's character in this film and Leonardo's character in Inception, somewhat resemble you, Christopher, in style, in look. Is, that, is this just a grand coincidence? Are they, are they looking at their director and saying, hmm, maybe there's, there's a model for me there? Is this something that you're aware of? I, you know, I've, I've been teased about it in the past. I, funnily enough, I think there are, you know, whether you're looking at, you know, Carl McLaughlin with David Lynch and Blue Velvet, he does his, you know, collar up order. I think there is a, a slightly mischievous tendency on the part of, of actors to see in the, in the filmmakers, see, see where as a writer, particularly with writer directors, where they put a bit of themselves into something and then build on, on that. Um, I mean, Tom Hardy maintains that Bane is somehow based on me. I've never figured <laughs> that one out. <laughs> but in that's Tom's a, mind, wow, that's a some, 
I was going to say, in Tom's <laughs> mind, there's some very complex uh, interweaving of impulses and, and influences that somehow I have a voice in. But uh, <laughs> I think uh, it's certainly not uh, not conscious on my part. And uh, I think Rob with uh, Neil, we talked a lot about a lot of different uh, influences uh, on that character, none of which were me. So uh, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Uh, Rob, as you well know, was cast as as Batman right when you started shooting, I believe. Um, yeah. Since since then, uh, we've seen a glimpse of it. I assume you've seen the trailer from Matt Reeves. Um, what do you make of it? What do you? I mean, are you? I mean, now you are a spectator. Um, is it fascinating to see someone else's slightly different take? Do you see similarities, differences? What excites you about what they're doing with their Batman? I mean, it, first and foremost, I mean, a couple of things really excite me. I mean, Matt Reeves, is a great filmmaker. That that right there. Uh, but Rob, I mean, having worked with Rob, I mean, this guy, he can do anything. He's just, just one of the greats. And, uh, so for him putting his talent to that, um, I think that's something fans should really be looking forward to. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the first conversation I ever had with Paul Levitz, who's the head of DC comics at the time, you know, we flew out to New York when we knew we were going to do Batman myself and David Goyer. Um, and we, we sat with him and, and, you know, talk about what we what what were the parameters? What could we do? What couldn't we do? You know, we were sort of feeling it out with him. And one of the things he said is he said, Batman, of all of the characters, more so than Superman, Batman is the one who really benefits from different interpretations and different interpretations that change over time, both in the comics and indeed then in the movies. And I think the success of our movies, the previous, the prior success of uh, Tim Burton's movies, I mean, I think you see that very, very clearly. And then moving on to Zack Snyder's interpretation. And, and now there'll be, uh, you know, Rob's version. And uh, it's, uh, I think it's really true that Batman is, is, you know, owned and interpreted differently by different generations. And it's one of the things that's kept that character uh, alive and vital over the years. And I think yeah. we'll continue to do. You've had a great track record of, of eliciting some fantastic um, villainous performances in your career, and, and Kenneth Branagh uh, continues that tradition. This is this is a character that almost could have belonged in, in, in a Bond film in a way. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, sorry, sorry, a Batman film. I meant a Bond film as well. Um, but I'm I think more a Batman film than a Bond film. Actually. Yeah, perhaps. He's right. So, <laughs> well, he's so thuggish, and it was something I talked with Ken a lot about. It, it's not. There's a there's a difference with the the Bond villains, and I'm very familiar with the Bond villains and and the attraction of that. But they tend to be philosophers. They tend to be eloquent in a way that I didn't want Sato to be. I wanted him to be this kind of, you know, the the, the kind of extreme of, of kind of you know white middle aged entitled thuggery and you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Ken is such a lovely human being. Uh, I think for him. He kept finding, trying to find the poetry in it a little bit before we started shooting. And I kept really just saying to him, no, this is just as Heath in The Dark Knight was, was a force of sheer chaos with no more thought behind it than, than chaos. And he tapped into that. It's a primal thing. For Ken, it was a similarly primal thing. He had to be a thug. Just had to be, a, you know, a, a monstrous thug. And that's very difficult for somebody like him to play. But he, he really found it. I think he's terrifying in the film. The um, I've told you before my obsession with uh, Tom Hardy's uh, depiction of Bane. I'm not alone in this. I know um, what he did in that. What Heath obviously did as Joker. I think is also fascinating because these are audacious kind of choices these oh, gentlemen yeah. made. I mean, this is this is there's no there's no safety net for any of these guys. And Tom, you you mentioned Tom Hardy. We talked about him a minute ago. 
I mean, what he did with that character has yet to be fully appreciated. It's an extraordinary performance. And um, truly without a safety net. I mean, the voice, the relationship between the, just seeing the eyes and the brow, you know, all these discussions about the mask and what it would reveal, what it wouldn't reveal. And he, you know, one of the things I remember him saying to me is he sort of put his finger up to his temple, his eyebrow and said, can you give me this to play with? Let me, let people see this. And uh, sure enough, you see there in the film, there's this kind of Brando-esque sort of brow yeah. expressing all kinds of just, just monstrous things. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's really quite a performance. Do you remember the moment when for Heath and or Tom, you saw them early on that gave you um, confidence that the choices they were making were going to pay off? In both cases, it was it was the same. And probably when I came to Dark Knight Rises, I was remembering that and, and pushed towards it. It was the, the hair and makeup tests we did. Uh, and for the Dark Knight, you know, I had Wally Fister just get a handheld camera, 35 mil, put a light up on the stage. Heath would come in with one particular type of wardrobe, one particular type of makeup, move around, no sound recording. So not self-conscious, just moving trying different weapons, different pairs of shoes. And we all sort of got to watch this sort of magical, magical kind of transformation and watch him find, not that he was finding it in that moment, but he was just gradually unveiling the things he'd been working on for months and months and months. And then he'd throw in a line or two, even though there was no dialogue, but you just hear him letting it out, letting the laugh out into the room to echo around and just experimenting with it. And, uh, yeah, the tests were, were incredible looking. And, and when we came to do Dark Knight Rises, I, I think probably with that in the back of my mind, I kind of waited till we really had the mask figured out, had endless discussions with Tom. He'd done all this kind of work in advance, but then to see him kind of walk into the harsh top light, kind of walk out there and, uh, uh, you know, assume that character. And I think in both cases, interestingly, the key stills of those characters, um, the one of, of Heath is a very big close-up of Heath with just his eyes and his mouth visible. It was very defining. It was the first image we put out that was taken during the hair and makeup test, not during wow. the principal. Similarly with Tom, um, there's, a, there's a, a great shot of him sort of from behind looking across his back with his head turned to the left that we put out right at the beginning. That was also from his hair and makeup test. So uh, yeah, it's kind of, kind of been the way those things have come together, but that's the... The interesting thing with this generation of actors, of which you know Heath, obviously a phenomenal leader in that, and and Tom, you know, just just one of the finest of his generation, they fuse the sort of psychological realism, the internal method-based acting of the '70s onwards, well '50s onwards, really, um, but they also combine it with this older, more external, you know, call it Olivier Charles Lawton, you know, that prior generation of you know, uh, sort of give me the hat and the walking stick and let me sort of find that and see how the walk informs the character. They're coming at it from both ends. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing such fantastic work, um, you know, from actors like that, who they, they stand on the shoulders of prior generations who've gone this way or that way. Everything's been external or everything's been internal. And uh, the, these actors, they're approaching it from, from uh, both places. One of the, the things I truly always appreciate about your films is the way you, you, you know how to stick a landing. You know how to end a film. And that's obviously, as you well know, very important. That's the first thing people are going to be talking about when they leave the theater. Um, did, they, did this filmmaker disappoint me or leave me um, wondering about further stories? I mean, to a man, almost all of your films um, ask questions of the audience that are great to talk to with whoever you've just seen the movie with. Um, mm -hmm. 
do you often start with the ending of a film? This film obviously is so symmetrical. It has to it all probably comes at once in a way it has to work the ending well, so, well somewhat but you have the you have the storyline you have the chronology of the events and then you have the story as the audience is going to see it um i don't necessarily start with the ending but i would never i would never go too far with a project without knowing the ending i would right. not sit down to write the script without knowing the ending the ending um is everything and it's it's absurd you're gonna have a three-hour film and you know, two hours and 45 minutes of it can be terrific. And if the ending doesn't work, it doesn't matter. Um, the other way around can just about work, uh, you know, but the ending is everything, which it sounds absurd, but at the same time, in a way, you know, it's like if somebody tells a, a long anecdote that's, you know, if it doesn't have a punchline, it's, it's not gonna be <laughs> yeah, worth They just trail we've, off and you're like- and oh, you know, We've all had that experience. And, <laughs> yeah. and, but it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating thing. It's the relationship between time and narrative because you can hear the longest story, and if it has a great ending, you don't feel you've wasted your time. If the ending doesn't work, you immediately retroactively are bored, and you retroactively have yeah. a bad time listening to that story. And uh, you know that's very much what movies are. You know, you it, you need the ending. You need to know where it's going, and it 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 has to land somehow. Uh, so you you got to have that to to my mind you got to have that before you get too far with the project one of the things I, I appreciate about you that maybe some people don't realize is um you uh you enjoy all manner of filmmaking i remember when you came by my office we were chit-chatting about our mutual love of dirty rotten scoundrels uh you love 2001 but you also apparently love kingpin and the fast and the furious movies i've heard uh-huh <laughs> Are you a are you a Tokyo Drift guy, a Fast Five guy? What do you like about Fast and Furious? I I'm sort of original recipe. I mean, the Fast and Furious, the Rob Kern original. Um, but I I've got a very soft spot for Tokyo Drift actually. Um, and then the skill, as you know, Justin Lin's iterations. You know, as they got crazier and bigger and crazier and bigger, um, they became something else, but something else kind of fun. Um, you know, it it. The fun thing about those movies is even as they've gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, as sequels have to do, everyone always complains that sequels get bigger, but we are the people making sequels get bigger. We do want them bigger. You don't want them smaller. It's the Alien 3 lesson that Venture learned. It's like, you, you know, you can do it, but it's not going to make anybody happy, even right. though personally I love that film a lot more than he does, I think. But- <laughs> we could talk about it. I love Alien 3 as well, and he refuses. It, you mentioned that to him, I, and it sent him to a dark place. I've never <laughs> dared mention it to him. I, I think, you know, He's very aware of the flaws and he's very aware of the appalling experience he had making it, uh, you know, and, and how put upon he was. And I can only imagine, I mean, I truly can only imagine, but his talent shines through in that movie. I Absolutely. came out of that film and had a conversation with a guy I was working with right away. I said, I've just seen the new Ridley Scott. I know who the new Ridley Scott is and it's David Fincher. And I wasn't wrong. It's there in the movie, whether he, whether he knows it's there or not. Right. But uh, it, his talent is absolutely there. Were you, prior to Batman, were you in the mix? Were you talking about franchises? Were you looking for another, for a kind of an opportunity to flex your muscles in that way in kind of a franchise? Were there- No, not at all. No, my agent actually um, just sort of called out of the blue with this thing of, well, Warner Brothers, they want to do something with Batman, but they don't really know what. They have a couple ideas, but not not really. It's sort of in limbo. They hadn't made a film in seven years. People hadn't liked the, the last one. And so they they really kind of didn't know what to do. And this it really was in the days before these sort of crown jewel properties were kind of put on a 
ticking clock schedule where it's like, we got to find somebody to do something with this. Every asset must be exploited, that kind of thing. They hadn't really quite got into that rhythm yet. Um, and so it was really this incredible opportunity to just go in and pitch, you know, really what I wanted to do and, and you know, freely. Um, but no, I had actually spent that, that year uh, writing a script about Howard Hughes, uh, right. that uh, an adaptation that uh, I labored over for a very long time and, you know, couldn't crack it and couldn't crack it. And I finally cracked it just as they went into production on uh, The Aviators. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's Hollywood, right? Look, it's been a few years now, obviously, since that. And now it's been a few years since Warren Beatty's. Um, are you, have you looked at that script in the last year or two? Or are you ready to consider going back to that one? I haven't, I haven't dusted that one off lately. Um, I, I tend to go back to it every few years and, and have a read. But uh, it's, it's tricky because, um, you know, I'm passionate about the reinterpretation of the character. But, you know, having had, you know, a significant movie like you know, Scorsese and, and DiCaprio's interpretation, you know, you, uh, it's, uh, it's a tricky proposition. So right. but I'll, I'll probably take a look at it again uh, sometime soon and see if it still speaks to me. But I was, I was very happy with the script when I wrote it. It was kind of the, kind of the most fun, not the most fun, but the, the best writing experience I think I've had. Do you have other screenplays in the, in the drawer that you would or could go back to? Is that the only one that really jumps out as something that's in a, a state where you could seriously consider going back to? That's the, that's the only finished one that, that, you know, I was ready to go kind of thing. Um, and then I have, I have a few that I uh, wound up uh, using for other things. So when I took over Interstellar from um, Spielberg was originally meant to do it. My brother had been writing the script along with, you know, Kip Thorne and Linda Opes. They developed the, the film for Spielberg. And when he decided he didn't want to do it, um, I went to, to Jonah and I said, can I take this and put it together with, a couple other ideas, a couple other scripts I'd written that hadn't quite come together for me, but I had, you know, big, big chunks of things. I want to take those things and integrate them into, into what you're doing. And, uh, you know, uh, fortunately he, he signed off on that and said, yeah, go, go for it. And so, um, so yeah, I, I managed to, um, uh, make that into something that, that, uh, I was extremely in, invested in, in terms of, you know, ideas about, time and loss and so forth that, right. that have been uh, trying to explore in other ways and his amazing script you know that, that he had written it just gave me this vehicle to kind of channel these things into i'm curious i want to end a couple quick things like one i'm interested in is the necessity being the mother of invention when you look back at following and memento you know there are limited budget resources that spawn creativity i'm sure now you're working on this ginormous canvas where you have yeah. a large budget and you you're able to do a hell of a lot are there still limits when you when you endeavor in something like tenet are there yeah. things that you can't accomplish for whatever reason budget time whatever it is um, oh yeah yeah i mean it, it, the limits are never not there you never have enough time you never have enough, never have enough money if you're doing your job right because your job is to try and get the most on screen possible so as the film's gotten bigger as the budgets get bigger you try and keep the films a little bit bigger than the budgets have got if you know what i mean so you try right. and give uh, value for money and, and certainly tenet you know I'm, I'm very proud of the things we managed to get on screen uh, with the resources, with the resources we had, even though the resources were um, the envy of, of you know any filmmaker, um, but that's the responsibility you feel. We were in a position where we could command a large budget from a studio, so we felt this huge responsibility to get as much as possible on screen for that that money. So you're 
interestingly, you're sort of back where you started with not enough time, not enough money, even right. though you're traveling the world and you got all these people and you've got, you know, you're buying a 747 and crashing into a building and all that stuff. But um, you're still bumping up against limitations and the limitations, as you say, necessities of the mother of invention. That's when some of your more interesting ideas come to the fore. Where is your head at today as we speak um, about the future of theatrical? I mean, no one has been more at the forefront about advocating for this. We are facing an existential threat thanks to some insane circumstances this past year. Yeah. Do you still have optimism that we're going to be back to where we were? Is there, is there, can we put the genie back in the bottle after audiences are used to seeing Dune at home, and these large-scale films at home? What, what's, your, what's your thought? Well, Dune hasn't happened yet. It's a long way off, and I think there are a lot of, a lot of There'll be a lot of water under the bridge before we can look at that as a fait accompli. Um, I think the short answer is, of course, people are going to go back to, to movies when they can. Um, with Tenet, we were fortunate to be able to release the film. The studio was able to release the film in 65 different countries around the world where they had a, you know, a good approach to managing the virus. They were able to safely reopen their theaters with limited capacity, and the movie did great all of those places, all of those places we saw appetite to come back to the movies. Um, the US, we didn't really get to release the film because we couldn't do LA and New York and San Francisco and Detroit and so forth. And, you know, we did what we could where it was safe to do so, um, but, but we were unable to. But where it was possible, the appetite was, was back there um, immediately. What everybody forgets when they look at this issue is that, you know, Wall Street, whoever it is, there's a narrative that is constantly being put out there that cinema attendance is declining. And it's not. 2019 was the biggest year for movies in box office terms. It was a very healthy year for attendance. Uh, you know, they always trot out this, oh, the average ticket price is pushed up and that offsets declines. It's not true. The average ticket price um, of a movie in 2019 was $8.40. In 1977, it was $9.10. Yeah, I mean, it's just, these things aren't true. Right. The very, very healthy uh, movie going culture in the world and, and in America in particular, uh, but it's dependent on the movies. So when, like in 2019, when you have some really anticipated movies coming out that are absolutely huge and overperform, then you see growth and it all looks great. When you have a year when maybe the movies, you know, aren't, aren't quite as rewarding for people, then, then it goes down. Like, uh, you know, I mean, that's the nature of the business. So long-term, uh, I mean, I think everybody in, in the business understands that long-term people are going to want to go back to movie theaters. The question is how you get there. You know, all I hear these days is, you know, can exhibition survive these awful circumstances? And I'm beginning to feel like the question isn't, can exhibition survive? It's can the studio survive? Because it really is about trying to manage corporate expectations and Wall Street expectations of how you move into the future without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right. And I'm not seeing a huge amount of leadership or skill in terms of parsing that out. And I'm speaking as somebody who has earned most of the money that I've ever earned in, in my career has been in home video and been with respect to streaming, DVD, Blu-ray, back to VHS. And, you know, I've spent years of my life in intense discussions with uh, the, the people who manage home video and how to best do that and how to best make that work in concert with the theatrical release, how to draft off, you know, always hearing that the wide window, for example, between the theatrical campaign and the home video release is a problem. Um, 
we've always fought for the widest possible uh, window, not because we were doing that as any kind of favor to exhibition, but because our home video made more money that way. Right. And that's, you know, I, I have the kids going through college to prove it. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's the way we made our money. And we looked at it straight economics. Um, you know, you have to create a sense of anticipation. As with every other industry, you control the supply, you control supply and demand. You don't throw everything out to everybody at once and say, you wanted it here, you got it. Every other industry, every other marketing uh, department in the world, they understand that it's all about supply and demand and controlling that. Not that everybody has to be as, uh, you know, ruthless about it as De Beers with diamonds, for example, but whether it's car companies with a new model every year, whatever it is, uh, people do control the release of it. You put out the hardback edition and then you wait before you put out the paperback edition, et cetera, et cetera. It's basic economics. And the only thing that's really stopped that being apparent to, to Hollywood is that the theaters wouldn't necessarily let them do it. Right. Um, now that the theaters don't have the leverage because they've had to close for the pandemic as so many other businesses are suffering uh i'm not proud that my industry is then holding a gun to their heads and saying you know uh now we'll take what we want um but that equation you know that the gun that's to exhibitions head is going to be put back in the drawer uh sometime next year and then everything will change again I like ending on an at least somewhat hopeful note. You'll be happy to know your cohort and friend, Steven Soderbergh, I was uh, on with today and had similar, similar thoughts. So yes, um, hope here's to a hopeful future for exhibition and Definitely. back into movie theaters. Uh, Christopher, mm -hmm. thanks again, as always, for the time. I'm so pleased you came back on the podcast. Um, you know, now two down, you're in this for the long haul. I'm afraid <laughs> you're always going to have to be on the podcast now. So you've done this yourself. Glad to come back at some point. So thanks. <laughs> thanks, Christopher. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>